0: Well hello everyone, Uh, welcome. Stoked you're here, stoked that you're here to join us. Um, here have the Bible, why don't you go with me to 1 Corinthians 1 verses 21, um, all the way down to 31. And it says this, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God uh, is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that there are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Lord, we thank you um, that you're good. Um, Lord, we just pray that you would speak to us today. Uh, We pray that this word would just fall on good soil. Um, And Lord, we just pray that you would bless every home. We pray that you will bless every lounge, every living room, um, every bedroom, every kitchen, wherever this may be. And Lord, we just pray that you would speak to your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I don't know if you know this, but the word oxymoron is an oxymoron itself. The origin of the word oxy means to be sharp or to be intelligent or to be witty. And the word moron means, wow, to, to be a moron. That means when we say oxymoron, We are saying that something is sharp or or intelligent and foolish at the same time. An oxymoron is when two things that cannot happen are being said to happen at the same time. For example, working vacation, awfully good, climb down, only option. One of Levi's favorites, living sacrifices. And I'll give you one more, Christ crucified. Christ crucified. This is also the title of my message today. This phrase involves two words. They couldn't be more far apart. And Paul knows this when he writes, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. To be both is an oxymoron. Christ means anointed one. Crucified means guilty one. Christ means Messiah. Crucified means criminal. Accepted king, scorned. Conqueror, conquered. End of suffering, only suffering, blessed, cursed, are chosen by God and rejected by man. In fact, that it is so difficult to comprehend that Paul writes this phrase as being a hindrance to Jews and Gentiles. For the Jews, they couldn't get their heads around the crucified part of that statement, Christ crucified. The Jews believed that there was a Christ and that he would come to free them from Roman rule. They were expecting a warrior, a leader and a conqueror. And although they received these things um, um, in, in, in Jesus, it wasn't in the way that they expected. The Christ that was prophesied about could never be both Christ and crucified. The adjective following Christ could only ever be victorious or some other synonym that evokes images of, 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 of winning and, and freedom. The second half of the statement was such a stumbling block for many Jews that it prevented them from entering into a, into a relationship with Jesus. Their stumbling block was in the expectation of the Messiah that they wanted. I don't blame them, pardon me. Their biblical heroes, Moses, Joshua, David, were almighty warriors that were seen to conquer nations. David is described as being um, like, a, like, a, like a fighter or, or like a bear who is protecting their cubs. In my family, uh, my dad and I have this phrase, which is saying, um, it's like expecting a rocky road, but receiving a trumpet. Um, and for us, that that, that came because one time my dad sent me to the to the corner store to go and get um, an ice cream. You know, the whole family getting ice creams, and my dad he wanted a specific one called a rocky road ice cream. While I was there, there were no more; they were all sold out. And so I looked, and I and I saw a trumpet. And trumpets are like they're kind of like cornetos, um, or like uh, drumsticks here, but like of a, of a, of a slightly higher quality. Um, and I thought to grab one of those instead because one it it costs more. I preferred them, and since there weren't any rocky roads, then this is going to be like an improvement on what he wanted, Um, but when I came home, my dad, uh, he saw that I got him a a trumpet, and he was like, ah, he was gutted, he said, uh, um, he goes, you know, I do like the trumpet, but I was just expecting a rocky road, and so I even messaged him literally earlier today, and I asked him, I said, "If if I asked you, or if I said to you, it's like expecting a rocky road and receiving a trumpet, would you understand the reference? And he, he texts back immediately and he goes, what are you disappointed in? And so this has become a phrase in our family. And so it's like that for the Jews. They were they were expecting, you know, it's like the exact same states as well. It's like, that's how important this is. It is it is the equivalent of ice cream for the Jews. Um, and, and, and the Jews, they were expecting... Uh, they were expecting a rocky road and they received a trumpet. And so because they were unable to wrap their heads around this, it became a stumbling block for them because Christ could not be crucified, making this an oxymoron. For the Gentiles, and this is anyone that wasn't a Jew, they couldn't get their heads around the Christ part of the oxymoron. Crucified, sure, that makes sense. If we're going to say man crucified, then that would be something that would make sense. But it would be foolishness to non-Jews as it once was to some of us, as it currently is, maybe for some of us watching. Um, The idea that there could be an anointed one, a savior, someone that is the son of God is foolishness and goes against worldly wisdom, Paul writes. We see this today. It is widely accepted that Jesus was a man that lived and probably was crucified. Man crucified would not be foolishness, but it is not as widely accepted that Christ was on this earth for 33 years as a man. To believe that worshipping a man that was crucified as foolishness is not a new or modern thing either. There are two pieces of graffiti that mock Christians for what was um, called donkey worship. One piece that was potentially drawn in the year 200 mocks a Christian named Alexa Menos. Alexa Menos. Alexa Menos. Um, this piece of graffiti shows a man named Alexamenos Menos with his arms outstretched in a, posi- in a position of worship to a man hanging on a cross but with the head of a donkey. Another piece of graffiti mocks Christians for worshipping a man crucified by being the body of a man, but the head of a bottom in place of the face of Jesus. For the Christians um, that are listening to this, for us, we need to understand that these two words cannot be as far, uh, could not be more far apart. Um, For us that that can't see this, can't see this as an oxymoron, it means we either need to have um, a a better understanding of the defeat and the pain of of what it is to be hung on a cross for for what it was to be cursed, actually to hang from a tree, or we need to have a higher view of who our Messiah is. For generations upon generations, this foolish stumbling block of an oxymoron has been pushed back on, protested, argued, spat at, scoffed, mocked, Eyes have rolled. People have walked away from it. This phrase has been dropped, hated, rejected. And yet this phrase continues to be preached, believed in, foundational, Has survived the generation upon generation of scorn and scrutiny. Why? Because despite it being an oxymoron to human, uh, to human wisdom, it is true. Christ crucified. Acts 5 verse 39 says, But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And I believe that that is what the Pharisees of the time were doing with the church. I believe that they were fighting against God because Christ was crucified. Christ the Messiah or powerful accepted King was at the same time crucified, rejected and bore the guilt of the world. I wanted to start with this so that we're reminded of how integral Christ crucified is to our walk with God. When I first read this in 1 Corinthians, um, I was reading it and I, excuse me, and I just kind of started laughing because I realized that that's really what it's all about. Our entire lives, our entire faith, it's really about this phrase in, in, in Christ crucified. And that it's something where it's, it's not about us. It's not about me. And the reason why I started laughing is because, you know, you say that. You say, it's not about me. It's about Christ. Woo. But it's almost like this revelation. Um, just, it just went from the head to the heart. And all of a sudden, I was just like, wow, it's not about me. I couldn't help but to laugh at kind of the ridiculousness of, of I guess, how, I, how I've been, um, um, you know, saying it and then really just want to kind of hit home. You're like, man, this, it really is about Christ crucified. I love this phrase as well because I think it speaks to both the joy of being a follower of Jesus Christ, victorious, uh, that, that Christ was quotation marks, not like, um, you know, not like, you know, uh, what do you do for work? Oh, like he's like, a, he's a doctor, you know, like I meant that in terms of quoting. I do believe he's Jesus Christ. I love this phrase because it speaks about being the joy of uh, uh, being of a follower of Jesus Christ, victorious, as well as the cost of being a follower of Jesus crucified. Our relationship sometimes feels like an oxymoron um, uh, with, with, with Jesus. Here is the free gift of salvation, but at the same time, being a follower of Christ comes at a cost. When I was um, uh, reading about this phrase, Christ crucified, um, I heard about the story. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's an anecdote. I don't know if it's, if, if it actually happened. Um, but there was a church where um, uh, you walk through and there was an archway. And on the archway, it said, we preach Christ crucified. And what happened is that the, the church saw some growth because they were preaching Christ and crucified. And then uh, through time, uh, the church stopped preaching, um, we preach Christ crucified. Instead, these vines had actually started to um, kind of go over the word crucified. And, and then, so then the phrase was, we preach Christ. What had happened is that um, the churches started preaching about you know, the, the the goodness of Christ and that's important, but we're, we're, we're very willing to kind of throw away the cost of being a Christian in terms of what it is to be crucified. And so then it was kind of like, we preach Christ. Then eventually the vine started growing over this word uh, Christ. And so eventually it just became, we preach, where people would come and it was just a, really a chance to kind of hear and, and hear some stories and opinions on things. And it became kind of just like a public speaking um, event rather than a, an opportunity to preach not just Christ, but Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians um, 1 verse 30 to 31, and we read this before. Um, it says, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Righteousness, holiness, and redemption we're going to take a look at these three aspects of being a group of believers that preach Christ crucified. These three characteristics are impossible to achieve without it, without that phrase, without Christ crucified. And so for today, I wanted to lay down the foundations for what it is that we're going to be building on as we get stuck into this. This first thought, um, righteousness. The definition as it is commonly used in the Bible is this, in a broad sense, state of him who is as he ought to be. The condition acceptable to God, the doctrine concerning the way in which man may attain a state approved by God, or of God. Um, The bad news of that statement is that there is nothing you and I can do in the physical to be in a condition that is acceptable to God. Genesis 8 verse 21 says this, The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though Uh, Even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. From childhood, we are people that instinctively look to do evil. Excuse me. So that's the bad news. The good news is that because we are in Christ Jesus, we have access to being in a condition that is acceptable to God. That is the grace of Jesus. I read this the other day to highlight that Paul is writing about the grace of Jesus when he talks about what it is that we have access to, being these three—righteousness, holiness, and redemption—this uh, is the order of, of Christ Jesus, rather than Jesus Christ. Uh, it Says this in Paul's letter, the order is always in harmony with the context. Thus, Christ Jesus describes the exalted one who emptied himself and testified to his pre-existence. Jesus Christ describes the despised and rejected one who was afterwards glorified and testifies to his resurrection. Christ Jesus suggests his grace. Jesus Christ suggests his glory. So even though we are called to righteousness, it is only through the grace of Christ Jesus we are able to achieve a state that, uh, uh, that we' are able to achieve a state of being that is acceptable to God. Paul would more often than not write Christ Jesus whilst the other letters from the other apostles would more often write Jesus Christ. That is because the disciples knew Jesus as man first and then came to know him as divine, while as Paul knew him as Christ first and then got to know him as friend. So whatever view you currently have of Christ, it is my hope that the other side of him would be known to you today and that more importantly, his grace would be pushed to the forefront of your life as we dive into this sermon. If we are thinking of the phrase Christ crucified, then righteousness is the part of our Christian walk that is Christ, filled with grace, victory, the free gift, We are loved despite our shortcomings. We are good enough because of who we are in. When we look at the armor of God in Ephesians, it is the breastplate of righteousness. Why? Armor is designed to protect the most vulnerable areas. The breastplate is designed to protect the heart, and this is the root of where our feelings of inadequacies come from. By donning righteousness that is our breastplate, we can move forward in our Christian walk confident that our heart is protected with thoughts of doubt, self-pressure, and lackings and personal value. I think that this is an important part of our relationship with Jesus because it really speaks to our hearts and our feelings of worthiness. For everyone listening that feels like an imposter Christian. For anyone that doesn't feel Christian enough to serve on a team, run a group, preach the gospel to a friend, be a representation of Christ in the workplace, at university, at home, to a parent or to a sibling. To those of us that don't feel good enough to pray, read our Bibles, disciple someone, or make changes. To those of us that feel like we don't measure up, it is important to remember that you and I are in Christ Jesus. And because of that, we are righteous, blameless, and blemish free. Paul wrote this earlier. He did write this earlier. We read this earlier. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Abram was called to be blameless, a man that didn't trust God fully in what was promised to him. Noah was chosen because he was blameless, a man that had just received the promise of God and turned to alcohol to process what he had just been through. David was described as being blameless, someone who had a great struggle in the area of woman. Job was blameless, yet still had to go through the absolute ringer. In Psalms and Proverbs, blessings are described as being given to those that are blameless around 30 times. And we, through the grace of Christ Jesus, are also described as being righteous and blameless because we have done nothing in the physical to achieve the state. There is nothing that we can do as living ambassadors of Christ to lose this. Righteousness through Christ is permission to enter into a full relationship with Him regardless of how unworthy you and I may currently feel. Protect the heart, put on the breastplate of righteousness and accept the continued invitation to experience the fullness of Jesus spiritually. Our next point here today is is holiness. Uh, As being righteous is something that we cannot achieve through our actions and so cannot lose it through our actions, a call to holiness is to say this. Just because we cannot achieve through the physical a state in which we ought to be, that is righteousness, doesn't mean we shouldn't try. This is the invitation for holiness. And this is also the cost of being a Christian. This is the crucified part of being a Christian today. Another translation um, uses the word sanctification instead of holiness. And to summarize um, uh, uh, what it is, uh, I'm going to quote my good friend Wellington Bay who simply says, we're not living right. Righteousness is the invitation to live in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification and holiness are the invitation to take part in a fight against sin that is worth having. I do believe the best way in which we participate in this fight is through repentance. I read this about repentance and um, kind of like who we should repent to depending on the type of sin. Um, It said, if the sin is private, repent privately. But remember that it is okay to admit publicly that you need spiritual help in order to fight this private battle. If the sin uh, was public, then repent publicly. This will actually allow um, us and, and, and our sin to no longer be a stumbling block for people that need to kind of hear and feel the repentance. And then the last thing I read was that if you sin against the church, repent to the church. And that last one kind of like, Stop me for a bit. I think the first two make sense. I'm not, I'm not going to spend, I'm not going to spend too much time on those first two today. Um, I think it's important, but I think that those kind of make sense to us a lot of the times. Um, but when I read this, I was like, man, what does it even look like to sin against the church? And then I thought to myself, um, good luck getting anyone to repent to the church. <laughs> um, so today, what does it look like to sin against the church? Uh, there are two conclusions I've come to, um, kind of from what I've read. Um, the first is this. It looks like relying on other people for their spiritual walk in order to sustain us and the church spiritually or to cover our areas of weakness we don't want to participate in. It looks like being stagnated in our areas of giftings because we believe that there is someone better at it than us. God hasn't called us to continually take part in and draw from the overflow um, uh, of the lives of others. He has called us to have a very personal relationship with Him so that we also may be overflowing. An example um, um, of my own guilt in this is that um, I've come to realize that through the counsel of trusted others, um, that I've had a dependency on the prayer of others in order to sustain intercede, and move local church forward. This was an area in which I saw that there was an overflow in other people, and so I didn't feel the compulsion to participate in this area. This is an example of me being a burden spiritually to both local church and the big C church. I say this not afraid of condemnation from the Holy Spirit, but with an excitement to accept the invitation to participate in the fight worth having through the grace of Christ Jesus that Paul writes about. We individually as Christians have a responsibility to be set apart or be holy personally. Um, The second way to sin against the church that I found is to not accept the accountability that the church has to offer one another to help us live a more holy life. 1 Corinthians 5 is a super gnarly chapter. I'd actually... um, I recommend that that you give it a read um, uh, after this, but I don't want to go through the whole thing because of time, so I'm just going to summarize. Um, Essentially, a man within the church is sleeping with his father's wife, um, you know, stepmother. Paul challenges the church, saying they shouldn't be proud of how accepting they are of this behavior. He then suggests that the church should put the man outside of the spiritual protection offered by the church through Jesus so that it can be a, a, a destruction of the flesh or the sin. He then says to the Church of Corinth that they shouldn't judge people of the world for not exhibiting Christian behaviors, and then lists off a bunch of things that that could be, like um, sexual morality, adulterers, uh, swindlers, and the greedy. He actually reinforces that the Church of Corinth should look within the church for these types of behaviors and hold the people who call themselves Christians to the highest standards of accountability when exhibiting them, going so far as to say not even associating with those people. So here are a few thoughts that I've got from 1 Corinthians 5. Um, the first is that following Jesus has a cost of committing to sanctification. The second is that we don't see this applied in such a um, drastic way today because if someone has mistaken accountability for judgment, then we can just go to a new church. At the time Paul wrote this, the Church of Corinth was the only church in the city. And so the option to go down the street to a new church wasn't present. What this means is um, someone can try to hold me accountable I can mistake that for judgment because, let's be honest, accountability isn't always easy. I don't always want to hear about it. I can perceive it and receive it as being offensive. And then I can go to the church across the road, never having to have faced this specific area of growth in my life. I've got a sub point here which just says, um, you know, I'm hoping that we all have common sense to know that there are clear um, reasons and and clear good reasons to kind of leave and, and, and look for a new church. I'm hoping I don't have to go into that. Um, the third observation I made is that Paul didn't ask the church of Corinth to put him outside of the church because there was sin in the man's life. Because if that was the case, then we, we wouldn't, I wouldn't be here. Um, but rather, um, he asked the church of Corinth to put him outside of the church. Again, the, the, the reason why he asked him to put him outside of the church was so that he wouldn't um, have the spiritual protection that Christ offers through the church. Because there was a lack of repentance from the man for the sin, not because of the sin, but because there's a lack of repentance for the sin um, and a lack of accountability from the church. So there needs to be a two-way um, 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 uh, relationship going on here. Um, the other day, justice moved in um, to my one-bedroom apartment. We've got we have bunk beds. that's an oxymoron. Um, adult bunk beds. no. <laughs> Um, and so he recently moved in and he has a TV and we set up the, the, the bedroom with, with kind of like a lounge area and having a TV um, we, he was moved in for like 8 minutes 8 minutes and then uh, what had happened is that I put the TV down there was like a, a really tight cord connected to a lamp and I put the TV down leaning up against the wall and the, the cord was behind the TV I like left the room went to go to the kitchen and I, and I thought to myself that's not a good place to leave the TV and went to go turn around to move it as soon as I did that, just heard boom, 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 boom. Three big booms. And so then, and then Justin and I, we looked at each other. He already kind of was like giggling. I went back in. And what had happened is that the TV had pulled down the lamp. And then the lamp had fo- uh, literally come crashing down like Humpty Dumpty. Smashed the glass. Screen was screen was cracked. Screen was broken. And I went in there. I was like, that was so dumb. Like, just, that's something that you do when you're like 17. So I was having bunk beds. No, no, um, no. Uh, and I was like, that's so dumb. And, but in that moment, I pretty much, I left, the, I left the room, obviously picked the TV up, put it to the side, left the room, went straight to my laptop, started looking for like, you know, new TVs, or whatever. And Justice saw that and we are talking about it. And it was like, um, if I hadn't shown any remorse, then it's kind of like everyone's sitting there like, oh, who's going to take accountability? Like, you know, Justice's like, oh, crazy, you broke my TV. And I'm like, oh, crazy, like, wow, that is crazy. And then now it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, who's going to take responsibility here? But I feel like as soon as we show any sense of like, um, you know, this is my bad and I'm going to try a look to fix it. That's when we just kind of, that's when life's just better. And so for this, I think this is an example. Like this man, again, it's not the sin that he was put up the side of the church for. It's the lack of repentance because if there's a lack of repentance and there's a lack of kind of like accepting and receiving accountability, then it kind of gets to the point where it's like, look, you are... You are doing the first sin against the church, which is you are relying on the spiritual growth and the spiritual capabilities of other people in order to be fed spiritually yourself. So what needs to happen is that there needs to be a switch where we start to understand that we do need to take responsibility. The other um, fourth observation I've made about 1 Corinthians 5 is that as Christians, we've mistaken peacemaking and peacekeeping. We lack confrontation with one another in the name of keeping peace instead of working to make peace. Opting instead for silent judgment, gossip, or the classic gossip that's actually described as prayer. Or we've flipped Paul's writing here. Historically, having spent more time judging people that aren't in the church for their behaviors in in, in a very self-righteous way. Not not, not God-breathed righteousness, but a self-righteous way, um, uh, while simultaneously excusing the actions of those that are within it. My last observation for 1 Corinthians 5 is that I read this as an invitation for everyone in the church to hold everyone accountable. I don't read this as something exclusively reserved for leaders leaders of the church to coerce people into a place of an awkward power dynamic. Coerce. I said (laughs) coerce. 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 There should be no. Yeah, whatever. I've dug the hole. I'm just going to live in the hole. Um, To coerce people into a place of an awkward power dynamic. Uh, There's a great metaphor, which I think kind of sums this up quite well. Um, Levi told me about it um, actually a few months back. And the whole concept was that um, Christianity is like a city. Um, and in the city you can either have walls or you can have bridges. Um, what's happened is that um, the church uh, historically has had walls, very, very solidified walls, and the, the, the walls are important because the walls allow people to know when, when you are living within this the, the, the city that is Christianity. And when you are living outside of the city limits. So these are the walls. The issue is that there were no um, bridges. And so people couldn't get in and and people kind of couldn't get out as well. It was kind of like the stigma and, and, and pressure to kind of stay within the city and no one else is welcome. So then we don't like that. Fair enough. So then we swing the pendulum. Now we remove all of the walls and we have a city that's surrounded by bridges. And this is grace. And this is where we go, anyone's welcome to any time, except now we're kind of like, we don't have any parameters or we don't have any level of accountability from one another in order to be able to say to each other, hey, you're actually currently living outside of the city limits right now. And so what we need to do as a church is that we need to rebuild the walls while maintaining plenty of bridges. What this means is that um, people can come because that's grace, but there are also walls around and that's sanctification or that's to be set apart so that we know when we are living within the city limits, when we're not, and that it, we are reminded that it is an open invitation to become a Christian. I read this, it's a quote by a guy named Coleman Ford. I'm going to say, Sanctification is the cooperative work of God and Christians by which ongoing transformation into greater Christ-likeness occurs. Such maturing transpires particularly through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Sanctification is not about perfection, but Persistence. Fighting sin is a lifelong endeavor. The believer cooperates with the Holy Spirit working in them, their works being an expression of gratitude for their salvation. Sanctification, therefore, begins at the moment of conversion. Entering into holiness is not about a commitment to perfection, but to persistence. And the key to this persistence is the ongoing willingness to start again. Sometimes daily, sometimes hourly. And the key to starting this, to be holy, is with repentance. Um, my second to last point is, is redemption. Uh, we're going to look at redemption here and I'll, 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 I'll speed this up. Um, all the greatest stories either have a coming of age story or a redemption arc. Um, for us, going from understanding our righteousness and value in the eyes of God and then committing to trying to get a little bit better every single day, that's our coming of age story. That's our Aragon, our teen Gohan, our Miles Morales. That's our Andy from The Devil Wears Prada at the end of the movie. But redemption we like redemption. You've got Boromir at the end of The Fellowship of the Ring, Zuko from The Last Airbender, Katie from Mean Girls, Anakin Skywalker, Vegeta, whoever Ryan Gosling played in Crazy Stupid Love, Jamie Todd and Ted Lasso, and kind of everyone in Ted Lasso, let's be honest. We love redemption stories because we see these characters going from being chained down um, uh, to either uh, chained down either because of some kind of characteristic flaw, some kind of habit, a fear, or some kind of blind quest that they're on, to see the characters go from tunnel-visioned to seeing the bigger picture is a true joy. The pride and satisfaction we feel as viewers um, who have a constant bird's eye view of what's happening in the entirety of the story um, uh, 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 that, that we get when these characters start to get a sense that they have a larger part to play, I think is quite crazy. Um, there's a joy in seeing these characters choose to live with the bigger picture in mind. And I think that's redemption. It's the freedom that comes from seeing the bigger picture. Redemption is the term that was used when a slave was set set free, but at a cost, and freedom was purchased for us. If righteousness represents the bridges of of the city of Christianity, if sanctification represents the walls, then redemption represents the rights that come from being a citizen of this city. Uh, The benefits, uh, this, this is a quote, the benefits of redemption include eternal life, forgiveness of sins, righteousness. Freedom from the law's curse, adoption into God's family, deliverance from sin's bondage, peace with God, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. To be be redeemed then is to be forgiven, holy, justified, free, adopted, and reconciled. Redeemed, forgiven, holy, justified, free, adopted, reconciled. These are the rights that we have received at the cost of Christ's life. Forgiven, this is important, so that we do not, um, so that we do not fear entering into the Lord's presence. Armed with the breastplate of righteous, armed with the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, we know that we can enter into His throne room boldly, holy and justified. We've spoken a, 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 a bit about that already today. Free, ideally not free to choose exactly what we want to do with our lives, although we can. Um, Rather free to choose to make God sovereign over our lives daily. I think this concept is shown quite well in Exodus 21 verse 5. Um, There's a criteria for how long someone was allowed to have a servant for. you were allowed to have them for six years and then on the seventh year, um, you were to, to, to set them free. The servant, however, could choose to remain in the master's house out of love and devotion. For us, we didn't have to wait seven years for our freedom. This is gifted instantly. However, we are free to choose to remain in our master's house out of love and devotion. Next one is adopted. Uh, One of David's primary faults, which I mentioned um, earlier, was was in his love for woman. Um, And I think that this is actually a great example of um, the quote, what what walks in the father runs in the son. Um, If you haven't heard that, that's essentially a saying that, you know, whatever the father does, the son will kind of take it and run with it. Um, I Actually, I use the same word to define what it was, which is, you know, Something's free. What does that mean? It means it's like it does. It, it, it's free, um, uh, and we see in in uh, in David's life. Um, David's kind of struggle with woman. His kids take that struggle um, and they experience it in a much more destructive and non repentive way. For us, because we are adopted into God's heritage, we are able to break generational cycles. We're able to have an impact on previous generations and we're able to set up generational stakes for those to come. Reconciled. Um, through our reconciliation with the Father, we are in a position where we can help and aid those along the journey. Because I am reconciled, because I am redeemed, because my freedom was bought with a price, I am able to invite others along that road with me. I think redemption is a really, really important um, thing for Paul to, to to mention because if if our only goal is um, righteousness and then and then sanctification, um, perhaps there's no freedom in that. Um, if you know, if there was nothing that we had to do here on earth, then once we get saved, and once we kind of have the conversion, then we'll just get we'll get whooped. We'll get whooped um, back up to heaven. It, 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 it'll be done. We'll be done with it. Um, but I think that it's really important that um, we are free, so that we can live free here on earth, and that we can show people. Um, what it's like to have bondages um, um, gone. We can show people what it's like to live free. We can show people um, essentially just be be really good um, ambassadors and really good representations of Christ here on earth. Uh, My last point today um, is Christ resurrected. And this this is not an oxymoron. Um, At camp, um, uh, Darren, who is uh, Summer Millie's dad, he did a a communion. Um, And if you weren't at camp, Good on you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to summarize this. This isn't, this isn't the communion. This is just a tribute to the greatest communion of all time. Um, something that Darren said, which I thought was really, really, is it was, it was really cool. It was, it was actually like a joyous communion. Um, normally when we do communion, you know, in my experience when, I, when, I, when I've done a communion, it's kind of like sad and we're like, oh man, like Jesus died for me. Like I'm the worst. My bad. Like I'm so sorry that my sin means that you're on the cross. And, um, you know, ah, my bad. And then you kind of like sit there and then you like try to force out a tear. You're like, like look, at, look, look, ah, look how sorry I am. And then you start crying and stuff. You're like, yeah, I did it. Um, but Darren at camp, he, uh, you know, he, he's talking about that when we, when we think about communion and when we think about Jesus dying for us. And when we think about Christ crucified, um, obviously that evokes images of Jesus still hanging on the cross. Um, and the point that he made is that, you know, when we go into church, we often see artwork of Jesus hanging there in pain and pain suffering, all of these things. And, um, and so that's why we kind of think about these things when it comes to communion and when it comes to these kind of sermons. We're like, oh man, Jesus on the cross, I'm the worst. Um, but then he said a line and he goes, but the cross is empty. Um, he's no longer there. The tomb is empty. He's no longer there. Christ has been resurrected. And I think that that's, that's key for today. Um, or to quote my good friend Theo Vaughan, um, and that's Christ, baby. And that's Christ. Um, and it is only because Christ was, was resurrected that um, we get to be in relationship with him. It was only because Christ was resurrected that we can be in his wisdom. That is righteousness, holiness, and redemption. I want to close out with this with this last thought. And it's, this is from 2 Samuel um, uh, chapter 5. Verses 1 to 5, and it says, All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people uh, Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months and in Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Um, There are two lessons here really. Um, The first is that some some in Israel and and, and we see this in in kind of the history of of Israel is that some in Israel only chose David to be their king when there was no other option. Excuse me, that was a weird noise. Um, This choice came, excuse me again, I haven't even eaten today, so don't even know what's happening. Um, This choice came after the death of Saul's descendants. And these are the ones that were essentially contesting David for the throne. Um, And so you get some people in Israel who show up because they're left with no other option and they kind of go, oh, David, we're going to, you know, you can be king then. The lesson for us here is that, um, you know, choosing Christ to be king in our life shouldn't be the last option. Um, It shouldn't be the thing that we kind of go, um, oh whoops, you know, there's nothing else, whatever, I'm just gonna choose you. If if that's if that's if that's what it takes for Christ to be king in our lives or Christ to be king in your life, then you know, sure, go for it. I uh, you know, if you've already made the decision, but it was like the last thing possible, I'm not I'm not condemning you. Again, we're talking about it's it's all grace, baby. That's a bridge. That's a bridge and, and walls, whatever, you know. And there's right to the citizen. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm not saying um that 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 means that the choice is any less um, powerful, or, or or any less, or just is, or is any less. Um, but I do think that for us as Christians, we do need to make sure that we are choosing Christ to be sovereign over us daily. Um, the second lesson is that um, in in First Chronicles, we actually learn that two hundred thirty thousand men came to anoint David king um, over Israel in this in this in this in this period of time here. Um, and mean there was three days of feasting and drinking, and it was a party and it was a celebration and I think that the lesson for us here is that choosing Jesus and making him sovereign over our lives is a chance for celebration um you know for us we can to 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 commit to doning the breastplate of righteousness is a chance for celebration to commit to sanctification and being set apart that's a, that's a chance for celebration um to commit to being free so that we can an influence on those around us, to commit to being free so that we can um, help others reach that kind of, um, uh, that level of freedom as well, that's a chance for celebration. And so this isn't a, you know, I don't want, I don't want this to be like, a, oh, you know, like we don't righteousness because I suck and sanctification, oh, people are just going to like yell at me for everything I'm doing wrong and like redemption now, oh, I have to like help people out. Those things are, are a chance to, to, to make Jesus sovereign. And that is worth 230,000 men coming out and having a party for three days. And so for us today, um, let's just make sure that we are in Christ, make sure we're in Christ Jesus, that we remember his grace, um, and that we have the opportunity for, for righteousness, for holiness, and for redemption. And before we get out of here, I just want to give um, everyone who's listening to this, um, yeah, look, whether, whether you're watching this um, uh, live, whether you are listening to this on a podcast, um, I would love to give you the opportunity to, to extend one of those bridges, to extend um, you know, that grace and, and, and extend an invitation into this metaphorical city that is Christianity. Um, for me, you know, this has been something that I have celebrated. Um, you know, I love that I get to put Jesus first daily. Um, I love that you know, I, I know that there is um, a, a God-righteousness over my life. I love committing to getting better with other Christians every single day. Um, and so this is my invitation for you to kind of participate in this relationship with Jesus. Um, we've, spoken a lot, we've spoken a lot today, but um, what I would kind of say is that the first thing to make sure is just remember that you are righteous, that you are blameless, you are blemish free through Jesus. Um, and through Him, it is that we can enter into a relationship with God. And so if you're listening to this and you would like to um, follow Jesus today, um, then we're going to say a prayer together. And I'd love it if you could actually just join me in this prayer um, and then then we can live in the city together. And it goes like this. It goes, Dear Lord, I thank you that you love me. I thank you that you died for me and I thank you that you were resurrected. Today I receive you into my life and I make you Lord over my life. I thank you that you're my savior. I thank you that you're my friend. I thank you that you love me. I thank you that I'm righteous and that through you I can be blameless, Justified and blemish-free. I thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to hand back to the host. Um, otherwise, church, thank you. So stoked! And if this is the 10 a.m., I might see some of you at the uh, at the 3 p.m. Catch you later.